The Energy Gang is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Wonder has already financed more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects. Wonder was recently named the leading commercial solar financier by GTM's research team. And I can attest, you can take that analysis to the bank. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com GTM. That's Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. It's our first episode of 2019, and that means a time for reflection, an optimistic look to the future. Ah, hell with it. The government is partly shut down, carbon emissions are going back up in the U.S. and globally, and chemicals, heavy metals, and air pollutants are on the rise across America. We're going to take stock. Then, Jigger's favorite energy pundit rival, Bill Gates, is once again talking about the limits of renewables and the importance of nukes. Where does Gates' message and investment thesis stack up with the reality of the global emissions picture? Then, revisiting the media and climate change, 60 Minutes is talking about the New Green Deal. Meet the Press devoted an hour to climate, and the New York Times called climate change the most important story of 2018, a sign of things to come. In Washington, D.C. is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, Catherine Hamilton, our co-host. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. The partial shutdown continues there, but I assume you're not sitting around mowing your lawn or washing your car or anything. No, it's day 18, and it means for people who don't work for the federal government that we get seats on the bus. <laughs> and and a paycheck, too. Thank, thank the Lord. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Out in San Francisco is Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital and our other lovely co-host. Hello, Jigger. Hey. Nothing shut down out there, I presume. No, just traffic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Since we're all doing introductions, I have a new title, guys. Contributing editor of Green Tech Media. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll talk about the change a little bit later in the show, but Brendan Keyes hinted at it on Twitter. He wrote... I want to hear about how the podcast business is growing exponentially to the point where editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media quit his day job to start a whole new business, in analogy to a traditional energy company spinning out its clean tech assets. Hmm. So what does that mean? Stay with us until the free electron section at the end of this podcast for some details on the future of GTM's podcasts. Hint, it's all good, folks. And I'll get some entrepreneurial advice from Catherine and Jigger. First, though, let's uh, do our regular January check-in with the bedlam in our nation's capital. Before we go poking around the dark uh, in the shutdown office buildings, turning on lights, looking at overturned papers, we unfortunately have to start the show with the passing of another important energy figure here in the U.S. We talked about Jim Rogers in December, and now, sadly, former chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Kevin McIntyre, has died of brain cancer. Catherine, who was Kevin McIntyre? He was an attorney that did not have a huge public profile before he got into FERC. Um, I had met with him when he was at FERC. I was there all day yesterday meeting with Commissioner Chatterjee, who took that position back after McIntyre passed, and all the other commissioners. And there was just a real sense of sadness there. He was a real leader in a very quiet way. Remember, he led the unanimous rejection um, of the resilience rulemaking that Department of Energy had put forward. Uh, so he had actually made a huge impact, even though he was there, there for a fairly short period of time. And during that time, he was sick a lot of that 
a lot of that period. So um, he really had a big impact. And Chairman Chatterjee really saw him as a mentor and said, you know, he helped me become a regulator from what I was before, which was a political person on the Hill. And I think uh, he had a huge impact, even though he wasn't there for very long. That's right. Yeah. And in the reporting, Chatterjee talked about McIntyre and said that he helped him grow in his role as he made the transition from formerly partisan legislative aide to independent regulator, as you said. And he said, quote, I credit one individual for enabling that growth, and that's Kevin McIntyre. That's probably the nicest thing one could say about a professional relationship that I can think of. Okay, over to the broader issues that demonstrate how unprofessional things are in Washington. The shutdown. FERC itself has remained open through the current government shutdown. So has the Department of Energy. But EPA and Interior Department employees are out of work. Catherine, what is the latest on the way this government shutdown is impacting energy or environmental uh, agencies? Yeah, so not only are there hundreds of thousands of workers that are furloughed, so some of them have to go to work and they're not going to be paid and can't do things like make their rent. And our even our animal shelter is giving out free food to people who have government IDs because they need to make sure their pets are fed. So it's really pretty awful. But then there are also not just direct government employees, but all the contractors that serve those departments. And and it's not just Washington, D.C. For example, Denver Federal Center is one of the largest areas of government employees, too. So we have agencies like State, Treasury, Justice, a big chunk of a Department of Interior, Ag, Commerce, HUD, Transportation, Homeland Security, which is a big one, too. Um, so a lot of agencies are affected. Um, Department of Energy is not. So they keep moving forward, um, putting money toward research programs. But um, and FERC is, of course, funded through this year as well. So uh, FERC is in a lot of ways self-funded. Uh, so they don't through their enforcement agencies. So they were fine. I spent the day there yesterday. But on the energy issues, so Department of Interior and EPA do a lot on rulemakings. And those have kind of ground to a halt. And it impacts um all this regulation that's trying to be blocked or rolled back. And in a way, you would say, oh, that's good because they can't move forward. But on the other hand, it means that the courts, the legal arguments, the ability to make comments and provide some stakeholder input is also blocked. So um, that has really kind of stymied those agencies. And really, nobody is moving forward on any of those regulatory processes. The Bureau of Land Management still going. They're issuing drilling leases to oil and gas companies. Interestingly, in the 2013 shutdown, the Obama administration froze that leasing process, deeming it non-essential, but the Trump administration has deemed it essential. So we can see where priorities lie across the two administrations. Well, that's one of the interesting things about this is that the designation of essential personnel is really left to the the, uh, president. So, you know, they can determine which employees are essential and which ones aren't. The other thing that's interesting is that this entire government shutdown process was really only um, started under the Carter administration. Before then, presidents just kept running the government without a budget. There was no nothing in the Constitution that says the president can't just keep running the budget and um, paying people without a valid budget. 
So some of the agencies were able to go for a while until they ran out of money. So uh, in during the holiday season, the, the National Zoo, all the museums, a lot of the parks were still kept open. And then then they've run out of money. So they just they can't function. They can't pay people. They've decided to close in a lot of situations. But I mean, it can affect the economy much broader than just the federal government, because certainly in DC, that is tourism is enormous here, especially during the holidays when people come in to visit and see all these different museums that are the Smithsonian, for example, is free. Um, now, I believe it's shut down, it, they try to keep it open during the holidays. Uh, most worrisome seems to be that you know, EPA employees are not cleaning up Superfund sites or testing drinking water. They're really not able to respond to much. How worried should we be about that part of the shutdown? I don't know that I'm worried about these very specific tasks. I think to to Catherine's point, I'm more worried about the fact that, you know, folks are not going to get food stamps after February, right? I'm also worried that, you know, that one of the deals might end up like actually leading to a construction of a wall. Now, Jigger, I saw something from you maybe a week or two back. I can't remember exactly when it was. You argued on LinkedIn that we should fund the wall with massive amounts of solar on it in order to end this stalemate. Are you saying that that's you're, you're, you now have a different take? Or did I just read that wrong? Well, I think when you read the article, like that was sort of the clickbait headline. But when you read the article, it's actually just building solar farms along the along the uh, the border and calling it a wall. Oh, and then damn. Just sh- I guess. And then shipping power to Mexico or the U.S. and, you know, and basically funding it that way. It's actually remarkably cost-effective, right? Because during the period of time that we have tax credits through 2022 or so, uh, with, you know, construction start, um, you could probably generate the power along the border at like two cents a kilowatt hour or three cents a kilowatt hour. So um, even if you added a little bit store- of storage, you could you know, put something there. And the reason why I put it forward is one, it's a little tongue in cheek. But two is that, um, you know, what people say is a very effective border wall is basically sensors and cameras. And so you could put the sensors and cameras on the solar array, right? And so, you know, I don't really see putting up a physical barrier as making any sense. I committed the worst act in uh, internet journalism or internet readership. And that is looking at the headline and the quick blurb and not reading the article. So I'm glad that was tongue in cheek. That sounds like a funny <laughs> one. We'll link to that in the no, show it, notes. It really is. But I also, but I do think that, you know, it's a, it's an opportunity to, you know, put together a green new deal, right? I mean, it'd be like 20 billion bucks. You'd put something across the wall. You'd make sure it was, you know, uh prevailing wage. You bring in like ex felons and, and uh, veterans that, you know, have been trained to do solar and, you know, you really could build something ma- massive. And the thing is, is it's really small. You know, basically one row of next tracker, you know, trackers with sun power, you know, high efficiency panels would be about 1,500 megawatts, which is pretty small compared to the, you know, U.S. solar industry. Then if you use technology like drones to monitor the solar, that would also help with any kind of illegal crossing issues. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I, I think that we just need to get past this uh, roadblock that everybody has, which is that on the one hand, you know, the president is basically telling everybody that we should fear for our lives. And on the other hand, when you look at the data from the Department of Homeland Security, we have less people coming to the border today than the 10-year average. Well, I'm sitting here trying to make light of the situation, trying to come up with some kind of solar wall joke, but I can't do it. So if anyone on 
Twitter has a pun or you know a fake idiom or something related to the solar wall or the use of energy along the border, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Since we're talking about the shutdown of these various agencies, I do want to turn to a powerful piece of journalism on their functions, which again highlights that the decisions that are being made within government are having real-world impacts on people. And, and when we have these conversations, they can feel somewhat separate from reality. But reality is catching up with us now, two years into the administration. Right at the end of the year, the New York Times published a, a brilliant multi-part feature on the local impact of Trump's regulatory rollback, coal mining and industrial pollution in West Virginia, uh, coal plant air pollution in Texas, methane flaring in North Dakota, and pesticide toxins in California. And these journalists did such a brilliant job of tying specific rollbacks or rule delays to specific projects that are now able to pollute more. And, and so as we do this January check-in about the Trump agenda, I thought it would be a good opportunity to reflect on that piece or the implications of that piece. And for me, the takeaway was this stuff has real world impacts. Uh, and that's, of course, what The New York Times was getting at. Jigger, did any particular story stand out for you? Well, as you know, I mean, my own point of view on this stuff is that um, the EPA is deliberately difficult to work with, right? I mean, in general, it takes years of scientific study and all sorts of, um, you know, sort of process steps to get something through. And then even after the process steps are completed, the U.S. Congress can actually rescind those rules, you know, within, I don't know, remember what it was, but let's say a year after they're put into place, which the Trump administration did for many of these rules. And so part of what I'm trying to figure out is, um, you know, what people think the EPA's sort of role is and whether their process steps actually allow you to get a lot of these things done in even an eight-year term for, you know, or two four-year terms within a presidential administration. You know, I, I read a lot of the pieces around uh, pesticides that, you know, that Obama administration said uh, was, was bad for public health. And then you had uh, you know, West Virginia coal country impacts, et cetera. But it wasn't clear to me whether the politics of this were solvable. I think they are. I mean, it's clearly outlined in the piece. Many of the regulations that have been established under the Obama administration through the EPA, like the mercury rule, like the Hayes rule for power plants to reduce uh, smog in national parks, uh, like some of the industrial chemical rules that prevented uh, the spill of industrial chemicals into waterways, into surface waters. Like these were, these had been in the works for years, and they were in effect or or ready to go in effect. And the politics were essentially solved. Like, of course, they're controversial across party lines, but the Obama administration found a way to do it. And now with that these rules have been canceled or challenged, uh, we actually see pollution from these power plants spilling into the environment in greater numbers. And The New York Times did a really good job of tracking that direct impact. Well, I think they were good at telling the stories, too. One of the issues that we follow very closely and have been working on is methane, the methane rule. And states have been moving forward. So Colorado kind of has the gold standard best practice of methane regulation. But Wyoming just released its as well a, a couple of weeks ago. And the the issue is not just that you have on the ground grassroots implications from 
all of these different pollutants, whether it's methane or chemicals or fertilizers, but you also have long-term economic impact. And you know, this is about short-term economic gain for com- specific companies, but companies that are moving forward and who are putting forward technologies that deal with this and and deal, you know, try to um, manage these pollutants do much better economically in the end, as well as the people on the ground who have to breathe and drink and live in these environments. So uh, states are moving forward. I'm hoping that that will then provide some neutralizing of the issue from a federal standpoint on the politics, but we'll have to see. Well, what you see are a handful of companies that stand to benefit from the changes or rollbacks of these regulations. And you see the rest of industry generally say, and of course, it's specific to the rules. But oftentimes, when they're rolling back a rule, the industry says, wait a second, we've been planning for this for two years now. Like, please don't roll it back because we need some kind of industry standard. And we've already put the investment into power plants, scrubbers, or cleanup efforts, whatever it is. So generally, you know, there's like Dow Chemical, AEP, NRG, uh, a couple of others that really stand to benefit from some of these rollbacks. But the industry as a whole has oftentimes said, you don't need to do this. Like, actually, please don't do this. And I know that we tend to repeat that when we have these conversations about regulations, but it it's, it bears worth repeating every time that, like, re- regulations are not inherently bad. The government works very closely with industry to establish them. Sure, there's healthy debate on the intensity of these regulations. But if you get everybody working and rowing in the same direction, then industry is usually very supportive of this stuff. And in fact, these regulations are hurting people right now. And they're also confusing industry. Well, but I want to probe that a little bit. Like I, like for the NRG plant, for instance, in Houston, right? If if the NRG plant is so bad, which I agree that it is, right? Let's take a little bit of the history of this, right? So the mercury rule is something that we've been fighting since Carol Browner in the Clinton administration. So this is not a new topic. A lot of folks, once Obama came into office, were resigned to believe that the mercury rule was going to be put back into effect and have done a lot of work on scrubbers and things to comply with the new mercury rules. And so that's why they're more indifferent because they've already spent the money and a lot of states have already agreed to the um, to adding those costs to the rate base. And so I think that's why they're more blasé. I think the e- the Edison Electric Institute fought the regulations tooth and nail during the Bush administration. So I don't know that they were in lockstep um, okay with regulation for a long time. Separately, I think when you think about NRG's, you know, long and sort of, you know, tortured history around climate change, um, you would think first that the country, that the company would do better by its citizens um, in Houston. And second of all, given that Houston is a large democratic city in Texas, why wouldn't Houston residents just protest and get the plant shut down? They don't need national EPA to shut it down. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think what we can conclude from all of this, though, is that two years into the Trump presidency, the impact is real. It's acute. People's lives are being impacted, period. Go read that piece of journalism in our show notes. Uh, None of this is a what if. It's a how bad. Coming up, we shadow box with Bill Gates. But first, do you have a community solar project that needs financing? Well, they're complicated. Are you frustrated by traditional financiers' slow processes and inflexible offerings? 
Our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help you. Wonder just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to supporting projects in ways that other lenders can't. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake. In addition, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, and subscriber FICO scores are not required. If you heard one of our episodes last year about the complexities of community solar, you'd know that that is all really important stuff. Head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to submit your community solar projects today. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. Every six months or so, we turn our attention to Bill Gates. Uh, closing out the year, Gates issued his thoughts on 2018 on his blog, and he addressed diseases, quality of life, gene editing, and energy. His take on energy, wind and solar are fine, let's use them, but we really need nukes to solve the climate change challenge, and we need breakthroughs. No news there, right? He then pointed to the emissions challenge outside of energy, which, of course, the whole wind-solar nukes debate doesn't really apply to. I mean, of course, it can, but we tend to be talking about just electricity when we're talking about wind-solar and nukes. So, so we bring this up because emissions are on the rise globally and in the U.S., and we've made so much progress, but leading industrial powers are still belching out greenhouse gases at alarming rates, and Gates is rightly tapping into that in this piece. But at a time when the New Green Deal and 100% renewable energy are gaining traction and, and really galvanizing a political movement, Gates is taking the opposite approach, a more skeptical one that is very familiar to those who followed the innovation versus deployment debate. You know, we need tech breakthroughs, not feel-good slogans, he's basically saying. So it felt like a good time to me to reevaluate that messaging. Oh, by the way, though, we've invited Bill Gates on the podcast numerous times, and we haven't gotten traction yet with his team. So, Bill, if you're listening, you've got an open invitation. Jigger, I know you think he's wrong here, but let me challenge you a little bit. If wind and solar are exploding, yet emissions are rising here in the U.S. and globally, doesn't he have a good argument for his thesis that we need to go beyond wind, solar, and batteries? Yeah, but I don't know that any of us are saying that we are going to decarbonize the entire electricity grid with wind, solar, and batteries. And I think when you listen to the drilled podcast that we talk about, we talked about last year, um, this is exactly the kind of messaging that ExxonMobil and others have used for years to try to push off action, right? I think, you know, the part that was so alarming with Gates's interview with Arun Majumdar um, at Stanford was he was like laughing about powering Tokyo um, with solar and batteries. And he was just like, it's just laughable and unthinkable to think that. But I don't know that the rest of us have been pitching to power Tokyo with solar and batteries. And so in some ways, he makes a, makes a mockery of the millions of people around the world that work in solar and wind to prove his point when his nuclear technology of choice has been in research for 10 years, they finally announced that they might have a alpha or beta plant in 2025, and they might actually be able to reach scale by 2035 or 2040. And so I'm trying to figure out what point he's making except to try to delay um, really deployment at scale of solutions. Yeah, I see this as him just standing up for his own investments. So, you know, he has all that investment in TerraPower, and he's doing a lot of other energy investment in fusion, biotech, 
horizontal geothermal drilling, sustainable fertilizer. Um, also, he's done a bunch on seasonal and pumped hydro storage technologies. So I just see it as him boosting his his own investments. Yeah. And that's the part that interested me about this. So Gates talks about the limits of wind and solar, and he focuses on this wind-solar nuclear debate. And he's clearly like pitching his investments in nuclear. But if you actually look at the Breakthrough Energy Ventures portfolio, they are spread out across other sectors of the economy. And that's where we really have to focus on the emissions picture. Transportation emissions are starting to outpace electricity sector emissions. We haven't done a lot in industry. Of course, we ended the year last year talking about shipping emissions. And this is all stuff that he's sort of addressing in his portfolio of companies. Uh, but some, for some reason, he's just stuck on this wind, solar, nuclear debate. Right. And he says that the Rhodium Group said that when, you know, uh, yesterday when uh, they put out a report showing that, you know, preliminary emissions for 2018 uh, went up in the United States. And and we said that in great detail with many reports at the Carbon War Room when I took over that organization in 2009, because precisely because I thought that we were on track to decarbonizing in electricity even back then, but we weren't on track in many other sectors. But there are very positive ways of saying that message, and that's not the way that Bill Gates chooses to say that message. And so either I think he, you know, really just has a deep hatred for solar and wind, or more likely, he just is spitballing and he thinks that our optimism is misplaced because we haven't had enough innovation in these other areas. And if the latter is the case, he should just say that in a way that's productive. The thing that I think Bill Gates really just doesn't understand and why it's so important for us to all, you know, unify and take him down is that his words really do have a lot of impact and it really does make the entrepreneurs who are working on the solutions that even he supports um, more likely to fail because it leads politicians to actually get into a cycle of inaction longer because they're like, well, the current solutions are really not good enough, according to Bill Gates, we should wait for the better solutions to come. And they use that argument to support inaction. And so, you know, I just don't understand what he's doing. The other thing I would say is that if he really cared deeply about nuclear, which I don't think he does, I think he's just a blowhard, like he would actually help keep the 17 to 20 nuclear plants that are currently slated for closure open. And it would cost so little money. They could basically partner up with Vote Solar with like 10 million bucks and cut deals to create clean energy standards in Ohio, Michigan, and other states that don't have bold um, clean energy standards. So it's funny, Jigger, because you, you said he's a blowhard, but he also has huge influence. So it, it, maybe he's a little bit of both. But I see his Breakthrough Energy Ventures, this billion-dollar fund, as the whole point of it is to be patient capital and to take choose those projects that no one else is going to fund or that ARPA-E might fund a tiny bit of but just doesn't have the resources to do a lot of. And that that's where his best use is, given that – you know, he's not interested in things that are quick and easy to deploy, like wind and solar. And um, and so maybe that's just where we need to give him the credit is in that and not get too hung up on what he says. Well, let's wrap it up with on, on a positive note. If you had the megaphone that Bill Gates does, how would you spin the messaging? Well, exactly as I have, right? To me, this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime. And I do think that all the smartest people in the world should stop building apps 
and start working on carbon reduction. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, developing the technology because that's your calling or whether it's selling the existing technologies that we have but need to be sold far faster, um, then do that, right? Or if it's blue collar workers that are building this stuff. Like, I, I just don't understand, like, why the message has to be these guys suck and these guys are better. It, it can be that, like, we just need to deploy faster at scale and it's going to unlock a ton of prosperity. Here, here. Well, let's uh, go to the last subject, the the media and climate and energy. At the end of last year, I lamented the still poor coverage of climate and renewables. It was this particular episode of the Sunday talk show, Meet the Press, toward the end of the year that really threw me and basically all of energy and climate Twitter into a frenzy. Chuck Todd covered a major government climate report entirely through a political lens, inviting a climate skeptic on, but no scientists and no supporters of climate action. But responding to the overwhelming response from scientists and media critics and basically everyone concerned about the issue. Meet the Press did a whole hour special on climate change at the end of the year. And then New York Times columnist David Leonhardt wrote a compelling piece about why climate change is the biggest story of 2018. His column reflected an urgency we're starting to see in newspaper coverage. People are linking increasing extreme weather with climate change in their minds. And that offers some pretty powerful reporting. And finally, this past Sunday, 60 Minutes did a piece on the freshman congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and talked extensively about the New Green Deal and climate change, which thrust the issue into a lot of homes on a Sunday evening. So have we reached a new moment for how the press covers these issues? Does it reflect anything different? Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, NBC has said we're not going to bring on any denialists anymore, which is which is great. That should have happened a long time ago. But um, I was just telling a group this week that there's nothing like a good crisis to uh, as an organizing tool. And I feel like, you know, we're at a point where there are so it is such a real palpable crisis. And the US is great at solving problems that we're at this perfect storm, so to speak, of we have all these technologies that are now super cost effective and cheaper than dirtier technologies. And we have a huge crisis and merging those two is going to be really helpful. So it's a great moment for people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who really want to get something done. You know, there have been a lot of people working in the trenches for many, many years to try to make a difference. And I think now we're at a moment when we can do that. And I think the media is starting to pick that up. Jigger, what about you? Do you think that this is a turning point in any way? Uh, you know, I want to think it's a turning point. Um, but, uh, you don't but have then to. I looked at my Twitter. <laughs> you certainly don't have to. <laughs> I, I looked at my Twitter feed today and, um, AP issued a tweet that said, um, that yes, Donald Trump wants $5.7 billion for the wall, but Democrats have also been intransigent by not negotiating with him. And I was like, we're back to like, reporter what ifism or like both like, sidedism you know, both sidedism both, both, both sidedism and i'm like i don't see how that's going to get solved i just you know the fact that meet the press says we're not going to bring on people who challenge climate fine but then they'll bring in bill gates people and they'll say yeah but we don't have the tools to actually solve it and so I, you know it for me the thing is is that i think that this is really a crisis that where we need to have sort of World War II type footing, like we talked about in a previous episode a year ago. And my sense is like, that's what, you know, AOC is pushing. And to the extent that she, you know, catches 
on and people really understand that we really need to have a warlike footing, I think that'd be amazing. But, you know, just having Meet the Press finally stop doing bad stuff, I'm not giving them any awards for that. (laughs) I'm not giving them any awards, but it certainly is refreshing. Yeah, and I would say just politically, we're at a really good moment where um, pressure is being put on people like Chairman Pallone of the very powerful Energy and Commerce Committee, whose first hearing is going to be on climate, and where there's going to be a select committee on the climate crisis that Kathy Castor from Florida is going to run. And you know she's in a very heavily impacted uh, zone for climate change. So I think that politically, it's starting to become much more at the fore. And it helps to have a lot of new voices in the mix in the House of Representatives. But the the folks who've been who've been there for a while also get it. And I think it is going to change the conversation politically. Well, I'll tell you what, I think the best thing for changing the conversation politically is this whole new green deal, 100% renewable energy conversation, because it doesn't matter what the actual policy is. It doesn't matter if us energy geeks debate with the nuances of that policy. It's causing people to talk about the issue on different terms. And so you really establish a whole different framework for discussing the issue and you bring it outside of this false balance debate around climate change. I'm I find it quite powerful and very important for changing the way, you know, television news specifically starts talking about this issue over the coming year and years. And I think the way AOC and others are talking about it is very accessible. It makes it so that regular people can talk about it and think about it. And we're not just stuck in professors debating whether their models were correct. Let's go to our free electrons to end the show. Jigger, what is your free electron this week? So starting off the new year, I wanted to do it right and have two free electrons again. Um, (laughs) So... So there are two quick ones. One is that Tesla outsold Mercedes-Benz in both Q3 and Q4 um, on the luxury vehicle segment um, and almost outsold BMW both quarters just by a few thousand vehicles. And so I think that's a huge milestone and I think one that should be celebrated. They're going to end the year with like 250,000 cars sold. And I think you know they might actually be at a run rate of um, you know 50,000 or more cars a month next year or in 2019. So um, I just think that's a huge milestone and one that should support a Green New Deal. One Um, of them was my neighbor who bought a Model X and I almost fainted. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't know your neighbor had that much money. (laughs) I can see you going up to the the wing doors and sliding your hand (laughs) along the wing doors, looking in the window jealously. Oh, totally. As as we pulled in our RAV4 hybrid. Hey, that's a cool car. Come on. Uh, exactly. Exactly. The second one, which I know you guys have covered on Green Tech Media, is um, the 90 megawatts of solar and 360 megawatt hours of solar of storage that um, was awarded in Hawaii at jaw-dropping you know, prices of 8 to 12 cents a kilowatt hour delivered, which is below their depressed uh, diesel prices right now at 15 cents a kilowatt hour, just the fuel alone. And it's something that we've all predicted was going to happen. But, you know, seeing the contracts announced and, you know, all the big companies that won them from AES to Clearway um, just warms your heart and and, and makes you think that it's not going to take until 2045 to decarbonize the electricity system in Hawaii. Since you mentioned this, 
I got to ask you, Jigger, Shale in the interchange brought this up as the most overhyped story. Not this particular story, but the general reporting on ultra low PPA, solar PPA prices or wind PPA prices or, you know, solar plus batteries. And this is an example of a story that we ran because it's a record breaking story. It shows the continued drop in costs and assumptions about uh, project costs and pricing. Do But there's a lot we don't know about what goes into this pricing. And there are a lot of assumptions about future equipment and development costs years down the road. What do you think about that? Is it an oversold story in the way we're reporting on it? Or do you think it's still important to keep mentioning these types of records? So for simple projects that just have trackers, um, I would say that it is overhyped, right? Like, So I don't like to see the $0.02 cent per kilowatt hour, $0.2.177 cent per kilowatt hour announcements because I don't think it's reflective of where the market's actually clearing. And I think it's more important for Wood McKenzie or Green Tech Media to actually report where the market is clearing and what that article means in context. But when you do solar plus storage, that feels more like a self-standing project microgrid. And so I do think it matters whether it's 8 to 12 cents, because my sense is for a lot of the people affected by campfire in California, that 8 to 12 cents could get replicated in California. Catherine, what is your free electron or maybe free electrons? Do you have two this week? I only have one. Oh, um, and New just, Year's resolution? <laughs> right, right. In the spirit of patient funding, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy, as we know, is not has not closed and they continue to chug along. And they just made awards yesterday for $25 million of next generation marine energy research projects. So it, this is out of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And they picked 12 projects that are looking at ocean wave power, tidal, current devices um, to convert that movement into electricity. And I know that, you know, NREL, when I was there in the 90s, was working on that then, and it's been going on for a long time. But it's good to know that there's still that's still in the mix, because, uh, you know, I think those are things that that have some potential if they continue to invest in them. Cool. I'm still putting my money on ocean thermal energy conversion. Why doesn't anyone talk about that? Because like, it's a terrible can- idea. <laughs> to, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, you basically you know put a large ship out in the ocean and use the temperature differential between uh, different layers of the ocean to heat a heat transfer fluid and then you know run a steam turbine. Why do you not like it, Jigger? Well, in general, I think it's important to look at two different factors. One is what is the potential of the technology, right? How cheap can it possibly get in the future? And all of these wave, tidal, whatever technologies really can't get very cheap. It's just the ocean is a very unforgiving place and it's very destructive and the operation and maintenance costs alone are like four or five cents a kilowatt hour. But I also think that these all of these technologies in what I would call the thermal space really should be providing thermal energy, right? So I'm hugely supportive of ocean cooling for, you know, beachside resorts. And you're seeing a lot of those types of technologies being looked at in Hawaii, Aruba, other places. But then converting it into electricity is an unnecessary step. Hey, Peter Thiel, I've got your next challenge when you build that floating libertarian city (laughs) out in the sea. Use ocean thermal energy conversion with Bitcoin and see if you can make it work. Well, you know, I talk to you both every week. You're both successful entrepreneurs. And I was feeling kind of left out. And I get a lot of inspiration talking to you, 
every single week and a lot of the other folks that we talk to in the energy industry. And I decided to join you, hence the teasing of the announcement at the beginning of the show. So as of the end of 2018, I have left my position as editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, and I am the founder of a new podcast production company. And of course, before I say anything about that, we are going to continue to do this podcast and the interchange. So nothing is going to change. But my production company is just taking on the production of these shows and other special projects that we're doing at Green Tech Media. And I'm also working with all kinds of other organizations to help them, you know, figure out this really interesting, fast moving and sometimes difficult to understand podcast space. There's so much attention to audio right now, both because podcast listenership is booming and because so many people are buying smart speakers. There is a convergence coming and you know we're going to work with folks to help them figure out the space and to produce good stuff. Well, I love it. I am so happy for you. And it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, I started listening to your podcast back in 2006 back when I actually had to use my computer to listen to them for a renewable energy world. Well, I remember when you reached out to me and I was like, oh my God, Jigger Shaw's <laughs> listening to the podcast. <laughs> so I've been informed by podcasts for many years, but um, but it really isn't hasn't been since the ener- until the Energy Gang that I've actually listened to it regularly through, you know, uh, an app on my phone and had, you know, 20 plus, you know, podcasts that I'm sort of cycling through. And so I agree with you completely that the audio experience is far better than, um, you know, just reading stuff on my phone, although I do a lot of that too. Yeah, I'm so excited for you. You know that when you asked me to do this, I didn't even know what a podcast was and I asked you what I was supposed to wear. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited that you're doing your own thing and look forward to listening to a lot more podcasts. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to be working on some special projects with uh, some other energy companies out there through Green Tech Media. So stay tuned for some of that stuff. And if if uh, you know, you're interested in figuring out how a brand can or an organization in the energy sphere can launch a podcast, we'd be more than willing to have that conversation with you. But again, we are going to continue to do this show. As long as there's energy and clean tech news, we're going to debate it and discuss it. And we're going to keep stepping up our game with really good guests as well and take a lot of stuff from you. You know, our, our resolution on our podcast is to interact with our audience even more. So we're taking a lot of solicitations from Twitter and email and you do already influence the coverage, but we're hoping to provide more interactivity to form an even deeper community through this podcast. So I want to close out with a question for both of you because you guys are both successful at this. Do you have any advice for me and through me, I mean, like all the other people out there who want to start their own venture on what it takes to build a, a good company? Well, I think I, I think I've already said this before, but you have to say no a lot more than you say yes. It's, I mean, it's amazing to me how many entrepreneurs get caught into just being busy as opposed to finding really meaningful work to move their vision forward. My advice would be don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. Well, I might no ask shame. for help publicly on this podcast then. <laughs> See if everyone else can learn from my, my experiences. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I will not be listening to your podcast through one of those speaker devices. I still think that they spy on you. I know. Sadly, I'm one of these people who sees the enormous potential and is trying to figure it out and educate people about it. But I also don't want one in my house. So I'm trying to reconcile that. (laughs) (laughs) So best of luck, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks to both of you. All right. We're calling it there, folks. Uh, Lots more conversation and debate to come. Go on over, interact with us on Twitter. Your comments are going to be hugely influential in what we discuss on this show and, you know, how we think about the way we approach some of the topics. So find Catherine, Jigger, me, and the Energy Gang there. And of course, rate us and review us anywhere you get podcasts, particularly Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for being here with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media. <laughs>